Biden proposes a $2 trillion infrastructure bill, but which metals will benefit? Welcome to Kick a Roundtable. I'm your host, Michael McRae. We are recording this day a day early due to Easter Friday. Editor Niels Christensen is in. Hi, Niels. Hello. Happy Thursday. Happy long weekend, everybody. Kick a correspondent, Paul Harris. Hi, Paul. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. And we timed this perfectly. We have a longtime friend of Kitco who used to help us out with expert coverage in gold, but then moved to the EV material space. It's Ken Hoffman. He is global co-leader EV battery materials group with a little business you may have heard of, McKinsey Company. Welcome, Ken. Thank you for having me. Ken, can you tell us what you're working on at McKinsey and what attracted you to the EV space? Sure. So I joined McKinsey. It's been four years, uh, which has been quite amazing. Um, and when I joined, you know, I really wanted to look at sort of the future. What would be future trends and metals? And I really came across first nickel. And, and about three years ago, uh, I published an article uh, talking about, you know, nickel and its uh, role that it will play in EV uh, batteries. And um, it, a lot of things have happened since then that uh, proved to be prophetic. It looks like things are going moving much, much faster. Uh, and becoming um, a lot more interesting, a lot quicker than we thought. Um, today, I spend a lot of my time up and down the value chain, so from electric vehicle companies, uh, a lot of battery due diligence, because I really want to understand what are the batteries that we'll use in our vehicles going forward, and then how does that impact with, the, with metals? I read a lot of great and, and really bad information out there about which metals are going to be used and why, and will we have enough? And so happy to talk about those trends. As I say, this is a great week to talk about it, uh, certainly with the infrastructure announcement uh, that we had. First, let's switch to gold. Niels, it looks like the yellow metal had broken down, but I see it bounce back today. Uh, yeah, we can put all our worries away. It's now sunshine and puppies for gold investors because uh, we hit a double bottom. We bounced off that. Uh, we're, we're ending the, this shortened week above uh, $1,700 an ounce. Um, but... You know, if you've popped the champagne cork, you know, right now, you, you might want to try to put it back in the bottle because, um, you know, we still have to go above 17. So 1750 is the first target that we really need to get above to sort of create any sort of sustainable bullish momentum. And even and some analysts have told me even then, you know, probably 1780 or even 1800 to really uh, put some boots under. Uh, a bullish moves you right now. Yes, it looks like a double bottom, but uh, as the saying goes, uh, even a dead cat bounces once in a while. So um, it's, it's encouraging, but there's still lots of work to do in the marketplace. We should note that markets are closed tomorrow, but the jobs report will be out. Uh, Kitco market analyst Jim Wyckoff uh, writes that expected March non-farm payrolls will gain 675,000 jobs, following a rise from 379,000 in February. The unemployment rate is expected to be 6%. Niels, what were the results of the weekly gold survey? Um, so the weekly gold survey actually are very bullish on gold. Um, they see uh, what 73% of analysts surveyed uh, are bullish on the metal in the short term. However, there's a little bit more nuance to that number. They see a bounce, but again, you know, that conviction isn't really there until we get at least above uh, 1750. Retail investors, uh, they're actually really not buying this bounce. Uh, only uh, 41% of uh, analysts uh, out of uh, only 41% of uh, retail investors surveyed in our in our online polls are bullish on gold uh, next week. Up uh, 43% are actually bearish, so they have that slight advantage. Um, it, it's going to be interesting. I, I think you know we're sort of stuck in this in this pattern uh, between you know call it you know 1650 and 1750. You know until we get some some guidance on. The U.S. dollar on bond yields on inflation. Uh, I think it's going to be a, a really tough uh, uh, move for the the either side. I think we're just going to sort of churn in these markets until we get uh, new information. Find our weekly gold survey out at the end of week at Kitco. So before we get to EV metals, though, uh, I'd be remiss, Ken, not to ask you about your thoughts on on the gold market. You know, are you I can't come on Kitco without talking about gold? I mean, come on. Uh, of course, I, I'd have a comment to make about gold. Um, I've always been a long term bull of gold, um, our belief sort of long term. And one of my favorite numbers to look at is a very simple number. 
take the amount of money the U.S. has printed, M2, and divide it out by the number of ounces uh, that uh, the world has ever produced. Um, and that has given us a very good number historically as to where gold should be heading. If we look back at 2010, that number was around $1,700 an ounce and gold got to $1,900. If we look at that number today, post-COVID, but pre what Biden has announced, we're about $3,200, $3,300 an ounce. And so I think, you know, gold is a currency. I always like to say that. It's always compared versus other currencies. And when those paper currencies are being printed as fast as they have, particularly over the last 12 months, that has to be a very good tailwind for the price to go going forward. Uh, we are going to uh, talk about uh, EV with Ken, but uh, I should note that uh, the precious metals have uh, somewhat been attaching themselves to the same story as well. Uh, Niels, uh, you had a report, uh, you were covering the Bank of America, where uh, they were talking about uh, silver looking very good uh, with solar panels. Uh, maybe you can talk about what the study said. Yeah, so uh, Bank of America, I mean, silver's sort of been dragged down with, with this gold sell-off. Um, you know, but there is expectations that, you know, we'll start to see some, some decoupling, especially as the economy picks up. Uh, the one thing, and this is the interesting part about the Bank of America uh, report, they see gold prices uh, uh, going to uh, $30 an ounce um, or 20, 29 and change. We'll call it 30. Um, but uh, interesting thing is that, yeah, they're, they're bullish on industrial demand, specifically uh, solar panels and uh, uh, the electrification of the of the vehicle market. You know, more si more silver is going into these vehicles because silver is a fanta fantastic uh, uh, conductor of electricity. So, um, and interesting, they they actually noted this. So there is some drifting in the solar panel sector. So you know, companies are using less and less silver. However, uh, Bank of America says that just the the amount of solar panels that are going to be created sort of uh, outweighs the the thrifting in the marketplace. And, and now we see, um, you know, we don't even know what this $2 trillion package of, of Biden is going to do and how this is going to impact, you know, the, the this green renewable energy uh, revolution. Well, one of the things I've picked up on this week, a lot of the solar panels come from China. And wasn't there news out of the U.S. that they're looking to sort of ban or inhibit the import of solar panels from China. So uh, how's that going to work? I, I, your guess is as good as mine. They, they were just, the Bank of America report was just looking at the overall industry and just, you know, uh, yeah. But again, like how does, how does any of this critical metal stuff work? I mean, we're starting to see a lot of pushback against, you know, China dominating this market. You know, there, there's more of a push to create domestic, uh, uh, supplies of these critical metals so i think this maybe ken has has a better insight into into all of this um but yeah i i it's going to be very interesting and i think you know maybe we see premiums on different types of metals from from different sources just to throw some uh, cold water on it i did recall you know i i keep hearing from uh silver companies and silver companies uh just regarding uh the industrial demand and the solar story i did recall uh cru had a spring study once again that's a spring study from 2020 stating that the compound annual growth rate for power solar power generation was slowing from 2.9 percent to 2.2 percent uh that along with thrifting meant that peak silver demand is behind us so to put that in perspective, 2019 was 100 million ounces that was needed for the sector uh, that was looking at uh, range going forward uh, to uh, the year 2024 and out to the end of the decade of around 70 to 80 million ounces per year. Uh, the reasons, uh, the author says that there's been a big solar buildout in North America and Europe, and that work is largely behind us. The spurt is uh, behind us. Growth will continue more baited. Uh, there's certainly more rollouts, though, that you're seeing in developing countries. And then that, along with more thrifting, you're going to be seeing less silver demand. Once again, that is an older study. Uh, there has been updates. And then there is, of course, the infrastructure bill that was announced. Mind you, we still have to see if this money is actually going to get approved. And then also if those green provisions are going to get through or if they're going to be watered down. 
I'll switch to juniors, but first, our sponsor, Revival Gold, is a growth-focused gold exploration and development company, which is advancing its Bear Track Arnett Gold project in Idaho. Bear Track Arnett is the largest past-producing gold mine in the state, hosting a multi-million-ounce gold resource. The project benefits from existing infrastructure, including roads, power line, and an existing ADR processing facility. Preliminary plans are for a restart of the open hip peak leach operations to produce 72,000 ounces of gold a year, with exploration continuing to add to its potential mine life, as well as a defining a potential second phase mill operation for a much larger scale of production. CEO is Hugh Agro, who has several years of executive experience with stints at Kinross and Placer Dome. He was also a past roundtable participant. To learn more, visit Revival Gold, and we thank the team at Revival for its support. Paul, let's talk financings. You noticed three interesting ones this week. Yes, it's been a, a very interesting week for some financings. Um, the, the first one that really, one that really, really did stand out for me was Skeena Resources, which is uh, looking to develop the SK Creek Gold Project in British Columbia, in Canada. They obtained a five thousand, sorry, a five million dollar Canadian investment from the Taltan Central Government. Um, that's one of their local First Nation groups. Um, and as far as I'm aware, it's the first time really that a First Nation group has invested in a mining project. I think it's quite common for them to, to provide various services, technical and professional services to, to companies and projects. But um, here's an example of a, a First Nation group directly investing into a company that's going to develop a project in their territory, which stands to create a huge amount of benefits for them. Um, and it's also a testament to the work Skeen has done to developing a very productive and open and cordial relationship there. Um, uh, similar but different, Argonaut Gold raised 10 million Canadian this week by a, a placement at a 8.3% premium with Osenko. Um, Osenko is the company that's uh, won a fixed bid EPC, engineering, procurement, construction, and commissioning contract for its Magino processing facility in Ontario, Canada. Um, very simple deal here. Osenko is helping the company raise the money that the company is then going to spend with them. Um, busy week for Argonaut. Um, they also announced that the, the sale of their Anapola deposit in Mexico fell through. And the, the final financing that uh, really caught my eye this week was uh, Equinox Gold agreed to sell 10 million shares in Solaris Resources. Um, Solaris was originally part of Equinox Gold. It was spun out. Um, they're selling those to Augusta Investments for proceeds of about $82.5 million Canadian. And that was in response for to a request from Solaris to uh, for them to start letting go, relinquishing some of their shareholding block. They had about, uh, I think, a 24% ownership stake at, uh, prior to this. So some very sort of unique or different sort of financing things going on this week. Uh, Equinox Gold, of course, that is uh, Ross uh, Beatty's, uh, Ross Beatty's uh, what he did found. Uh, interesting uh, past story that uh, was tweeted out uh, by Tommy Humphreys. And then that was kind of a sit down with uh, Ross Beatty and then just talking about how these cycles work and then how he developed uh, that corporate, that uh, copper portfolio and you know how it obviously paid off for them. Uh, it's just this. It's just the old saying of uh, buy low and sell high. Uh, also, I should uh, just want to note uh, that uh, Kiko is going to be uh, speaking with uh, uh, Peter Dowdery at um, Argonaut uh, Gold next week, so we can get a catch up with them. And we have invited uh, Walt Coles Jr., that's a CEO of uh, Skeena Resources, uh, onto the podcast, and we're just working on scheduling for that as well. Uh, so it'll be great to catch up on the Golden Triangle area. Let's talk early exploration, Paul. What is happening at Philo Mining, Hud Bay, and Great Bear? Yes, um, it's quite a bit of copper action this week, um, starting in Argentina with Philo Mining, which has the Fila del Sol uh, copper deposit in San Juan province. Um, they're step-out drilling. They've been very aggressive, and they've been hitting. So they announced they've uh, successfully stepped out one kilometre to the north and 200 metres to the east with the first three holes of their, their current step-out drilling program, and they're extending that through to May. Um, highlight intercept is 942 metres, grading 0.42% copper, 0.32 grams per tonne gold, 2.2 grams per tonne silver, for a total of about six sorry 0.67% copper equivalent. Uh, Philo has a, a resource already of about 4.4 million ounces of gold, uh, 147 million ounces of silver, and 3.1 billion pounds of copper. So going very well there. Hud Bay also had a, 
uh, announced a, a new discovery in Arizona, what it calls its Copperwell properties, um, which is just seven kilometers from where it's looking to develop the Rosemont deposit. A copper world in the past was called Helvetica, and they put some holes in to basically test uh, historical uh, historical results there, and they intercepted high-grade copper sulfide and copper oxide mineralization at shallow depths. Um, so far, they've identified a combined strike length of over five kilometers with opportunities to extend that. Um, at Rosemont, the company is uh, in the process of appealing the U.S. District Court decision to uh, look to stop their proposed $1.9 billion U.S. development. From early exploration to advanced exploration in your notes, you mentioned Marathon, Caliber, and Newcrest's Red Chris, Paul. Yes, um, a lot of um, you know, a lot of companies have been p- producing the annual resource and reserve update, and uh, other companies have been producing you know resource statements and other things. Marathon Gold reported the results of a feasibility study for its Valentine project in Newfoundland in Canada, with a, a conventional open pit mining and milling operation, which would become the largest gold mine in Atlantic Canada. Its reserves increased by about ten percent compared to the. Uh, 2020 feasibility study, and uh, the company's working on optimizing that further. The, uh, the the feasibility is basically the same sort of approach that it was adopting in the 2020 feasibility study, um, and it's now looking at uh, producing 170,000 ounces a year for the first 10 years, um, an average over the life of mine of 146,000 ounces a year, 13-year mine life following an initial capital cost of $305 million, uh, which compares to $196 million in the April 2020 feasibility study. So um, moving forward towards production there by the looks of it. Paul, terrific. We're about to bring Ken Hoffman in, but I first have to head out to sea. A number of large companies announced that they are not supporting deep sea mining. The World Wildlife Fund said that it had signed up uh, Google, BMW, Volvo, Samsung, SDI, the companies are supporting a moratorium on deep sea mining. The companies commit not to source any materials from the seabed, to exclude such minerals from the supply chains, and not to finance deep seabed mining activities, the WWF said in a statement. Uh, Paul. Um, you, you sort of cut me off before I got around to Newcrest and Calibre. Okay. Sorry. We're I was keeping, this in. To... We're keeping yeah. this in. <laughs> Paul, okay. go to Newcrest. It's all about the oceans. It's all about the oceans, though. <laughs> So Newcrest Mining announced an initial resource estimate for their Redcrest Gold Copper Porphyry Mine in British Columbia, Canada, which they operate under a joint venture agreement with Imperial Metals. The resource estimate, which assumes a bulk open pit mining and then a bulk block cave underground mine, includes measured and indicated resources of 980 million tonnes, grading 0.41 grams per tonne gold and 0.38% copper for about 30 million ounces of contained gold and 3.7 million tonnes of contained copper. Newcrest has worked to define the potential, define the potential of the block cave mining underneath the existing open pit operation, including commencing a pre-feasibility study, which expects to release around September time together with an initial reserve. In Nicaragua, Calibre Mining increased its gold reserves at its El Lamont and El Libertad mining complex by about 202%, which is the largest reserve those are assets have had in the last 10 years and the highest reserve grade on record. Reserves increased to 864,000 ounces uh, at the year end of 2020 after depletion at a grade of 4.49 grand per tonne. Um, That bodes very well for the further continued development of their hub and spoke methodology. You're done, Paul. (laughs) <laughs> my apologies for stepping on your caliber and then stepping on uh, your new crest uh going from uh the highs of uh i should say the uh, high plateaus of uh the golden triangle uh once again i just want to uh, tumble down into the sea i did mention uh just before i caught off paul uh talking about the wwf uh that uh was uh rounding up some uh high-profile companies uh, to put a moratorium on seabed mining. I wanted to uh, end that with just talking that uh, seabed mining had been on a recent roll. Last month, uh, Canada's Deep Green Metals announced a $330 million infusion from investors, including All Seas Group, Marist, and Glencore, and that was arranged through a special-purpose acquisition company. Uh, Deep-sea miners look to tout their access to EV materials like nickel and cobalt. 
Uh, deep sea mining has been around a while, but has encountered a steep capital environmental hurdles. It will be interesting to see oil and gas move to the sea in the middle of the 1900s because it needed more reserves. Will mining be forced to do the same? Ken, I want to bring you back. Let's talk about renewables. There have been many forecasts on EV adoption. We've had the stimulus announcement, which will result in more charging stations. Uh, Biden is asking for half a million of these. There is also more subsidies proposed. Uh, what is happening with uh, EVs and what is it looking like the forecast for now? I really kind of get the feeling that the timetable has moved up with just the stimulus and just the broader consumer acceptance. Yeah, I think it's moved up even quicker. Uh, 2019 was probably the turning point uh, in battery technology where technology costs dropped so low that you actually you know, started to get to the point where you were equal with an internal combustion engine. Uh, we're breaking that point currently. So it was uh, $100 a kilowatt hour was always sort of the number you would hear. Hey, if the industry could ever break that, they could be comparable to internal combustion engine. Um, and so we're, we're there today. Um, and so, you know, when you see that and then you go to Tesla or Volkswagen who say they want to cut that number by a third to 50 percent, you know, that's when you start to get a car that, you know, Tesla talks about $25,000 vehicle before any subsidies would give you something on the order of uh, a 400 to 600 mile range and recharge in five, six minutes, be driverless and all the other technology with stuff. Why on earth would you buy an internal combustion engine? So it used to be subsidies was driving this industry. The industry is sort of very much similar to wind and solar, which really needed a lot of subsidies 15, 20 years ago. Now on their own, uh, the, these technologies are, are comparable. It helps a lot to get subsidies, particularly in markets that are underserved like the United States. Um, however, the, these cars are going to be uh, just, it's where the technology is going at the end of the day. Now the question is, how quickly do we get there? How quickly do we turn this over? I want to talk about, I just want to stay with forecast a little bit more, Ken. Uh, can you also talk about, because uh, we always say EV when we're talking about uh, battery material demand, but uh, maybe you can also talk about uh, power stations and electronics uh, in terms of how much uh, that will have. Uh, are those going up as well? Are we going to see more demand out of those? Definitely. And you were talking before about solar and, and wind power. I mean, Texas really wishes that they had a huge battery backup system when they had their electrical problems. And But not only is the cost of batteries have it dropped by more than 90% over the last five, six years, but it's not only for cars, but it's for stationary storage as well. So if you can put a, a really good battery uh, packet storage system on wind and solar, wind and solar, which are already among the lowest electricity costs in the world, drop further up to 40%. So, you know, because a lot of these wind and solar plants, they don't work half the time. So because if it's too windy or if it's too sunny, the line that takes away the electricity just can't hold it. So it just is wasted. If you could put a big battery there and when it's extra sunny or extra windy, you could soak that all up locally and then leak that back into the system for times when you need it. That becomes really compelling. We always needed for these costs to get down. Now they are. Niels. Um, Ken, is the materials the same? Like, you, you know, can, are, are they comparable to, you know, the battery packing in EV compared to the storage? Or are we just looking at like a plethora of metals needed to for this new energy revolution? It all comes down to cost at the end of the day. So for cars, um, you have a you really have a, about three different types of main uh, chemistries that you're talking about. Um, some use nickel and cobalt and manganese, some don't use any of those, they use iron. When we look at stationary storage, there is a dozen or more different technologies. And which one will win, it may depend on where the technology is located, in cold environment, hot environment. It may depend on the size of the, uh, of the equipment. You may need something that's just absolutely you know, gigawatts versus something smaller. So it's, there will be, there's a lot more optionality when it comes to stationary storage than EV batteries. But look at Tesla, they use the exact same batteries in their cars that they use in the power plants. Is there a threat uh, to uh, this EV revolution and batteries uh, taking hold uh, if there's going to be a limited supply, which uh, could potentially uh, push up uh, battery prices? I know we hear this uh, from other analysts in the field. Um, yes and no. So I, I think uh, battery costs will probably continue to decline almost no matter what. Um, when we talk about the main battery components historically, uh, 
Um, cobalt, we've seen that thrifted out more and more and more. Um, uh, lithium, there's always going to be enough lithium. I, I sometimes hear, oh, we're going to run out of lithium. We will not. I, I can guarantee you we will not run out of lithium. The, the question is what type of lithium? Because many of these new battery technologies use lithium products that are barely made. And I was talking to one company and they said, well, we bought in our entire history of testing this product, three kilos of this battery material. But if we ramp up, we're going to buy 3,000 tons a month. And the entire world only produces about 200 metric tons a month. So can we refine the right lithium products quickly enough at a low enough cost to sort of enable? that? That's the big problem with lithium. And then nickel, nickel is the one Tesla has talked about. Um, uh, Volkswagen has talked about nickel. We have been talking about nickel for quite some time. Imagine, you know, we are looking at around two and a half terawatts of, of demand entirely, uh, stationary cars, two-wheelers, all sorts of batteries by 2030, two and a half terawatts. Tesla's looking for 20. So there are eight times that we have. Imagine what the material demand of Tesla is, right? And then people say, well, is Elon Musk just crazy? No. What's the cost? And and some of the cost is material, but but a lot of the cost is technology. So if I can use a solid-state battery that has double or triple the density, well, then I need a third of the material than I did before to get the same amount of electricity. So a lot of this depends on materials and, and having the right materials. Awesome idea to talk about ocean mining. You know, you have seen this industry demand to be green. Look at Indonesia, where companies came out um, a few months back and said, we will not buy any nickel that is produced if there's uh, tailings, if there's ocean tailings. So all that material is going to be dry step, far, far higher cost. And so, you know, a lot of people say, oh, Indonesia is panacea for the nickel industry. It is not. It has. It is following a lot of the, the rules that the rest of the world is saying, We this is what we want you to do in order to provide us this nickel. So it's going to get interesting very quickly. This year, about 300,000 metric tons of nickel are going to be demanded by the EV industry. And an industry that has about a million and a half tons of clean nickel, that's something that has been really tight. And one thing I do notice in a lot of analyst reports, they are far, far too low on the nickel content that they see in the EVs. It's far higher than what they think it is. Uh, Niels, uh, I'll just uh, bring you in for a sec, but um, I just want to uh, invite uh, the listeners uh, to take a look at uh, one of Ken Hoffman's uh, presentations. Because, uh, Ken, you've always been very excellent in terms of showing the uh, different types of battery chemistries that you can have and then all the types of trade-offs that you can have. And then so you're always ending up with this type of substitution or it depends upon uh, the role that the battery will have or what the industry trends are because there just seems to be so many possibilities. Uh, but, uh, Niels, uh, your question for Ken, please. So I wanted to ask uh, his thoughts on a subject that we talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago, that, that new process for nickel. Um, and how that uh, is going to impact the market. I mean, we've seen nickel prices sort of, sort of go on this roller coaster ride uh, following the, the news that there's there's a new way to to process yeah, this metal. It's our, uh, um, it's our friends in Indonesia, the Chinese making big investments. Um, now, remember, this is the same group that about five years ago had a new technology called HPAL that was going to put huge amounts of to the market and drive the price lower. They have now sold out of that after three years of delays um, and now they have sort of moved on to something new that is really going to change the world. It isn't an old, it isn't an, a new technology. It is an old technology. It's using uh, nickel mat, which is produced by using huge amounts of sulfur uh, to uh, produce a high grade nickel mat. There's a lot of environmental issues. The same thing could happen where companies say, we don't want to buy something with that much of a sulfur uh, and CO2 content. Um, the the technology has been around since 1974. So there's nothing really inherently new. Um, it's just the quantities that they 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 noted are are odd to, to go from a you know technology that has been around producing very limited amounts to tremendous amounts in a very short order. Um, it's something that we're interested in. We're spending a lot of time on. Um, I guess we're um, uh, cautiously looking at this and really wondering if this is the case. I think the fact that uh, this company has sort of just given up on one technology how to go to this tells you that you know perhaps they're still working on some of the fire. How are fuel cells faring in this right now? Uh, you know, is there a space uh, for PGM and uh, is there going to be a space for uh, the uh, development of uh, fuel cells? Yeah, hydrogen has been really interesting. And, and as a firm, we sort of see hydrogen coming after EVs. So we do think 
There's a tremendous amount of money being spent on batteries. The cost of batteries are dropping very uh, significantly. And the ability to deliver electricity obviously is, is well entrenched. Um, hydrogen has a lot of hurdles to overcome. It not only is the fuel cells themselves, but the delivery of those fuel cells is very, very expensive. However, there are a lot of uh, uh, activities going on to try to make hydrogen fuel cells a lot more common, but we really don't think that becomes a significant part of the, of the stream really into the late 2030s and 2040s. Is there any uh, technology that, you know, we always hear these headlines, but is there any technology that's coming around that could be truly revolutionary, could be truly disruptive, where you would end up certainly dropping or be able to substitute some of these key EV materials like nickel? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, you've heard the, the term LFP battery, so cobalt-less battery. And I'd like to note that uh, your, your little nine, the triple nine cell that you have, you're putting in your uh, remote control is technically cobalt-free. So so when you hear, you know, we have a cobalt-free battery, it doesn't really mean much. It's an old battery called LFP. It's been around for more than 15, 20 years. Um, but it's received a new life because what car companies have been very clever about is how much of those chemicals they can put in the same space. So you used to need an awful lot of packaging and control systems around these batteries to make them safe. And as the industry has matured more, you've been able to take out a lot of that packaging, so much so that they're integrating the, the batteries right into the vehicle called cell packs. And so from this, by having so much more room because you have so much less packing, even though the battery holds the same density it did in the past, by doubling or more the amount in that car, you can still get a decent range. So there are options, and if you looked at both Tesla and Volkswagen, they both gave three different versions. They're preparing for the future. Version one is the very low cost, but won't be the greatest range car. That will be an LFP battery, and both of them will be done. Well, two, they're looking to produce a new battery, which would, they're both saying around two-thirds nickel, one-third manganese. Manganese is a really interesting um, metal for this market. Number one, the market is more than 10 times larger in terms of volume than nickel. Um, number two, in theory, manganese could hold more electrons than nickel. Uh, the bad part is nickel loves to take and give up electrons very quickly. Hit the gas pedal, something actually happens. Manganese doesn't do that. So there needs to be a dopant, um, probably something with graphene or some other bonding product uh, that actually can change manganese so it takes up and gives up materials. And then there's an ultra high nickel battery that Tesla talks about, which will be like 95, 97% of nickel. Um, so we, nickel is, is always involved. <laughs> it's always everyone. It keeps all these cars companies up at night. Um, and we'll have to see. I mean, that's the only reason why people are really looking for ocean mining and things of that nature is how are we going to come up with the nickel that this industry could need uh, going forward? Now, in terms of taking those nickel costs out and the cell costs down, solid state has a great uh, opportunity to do so. Because again, if you can go to a solid state battery where your densities are two, three, four times what they are today, with the same battery with four times or three times or two times the amount of power, whatever that number is, but you cut your cost in, in essence in half. And that's that's probably what we're having with the next wave of, of products. You mentioned it and we did come up on our headlines uh, just regarding a deep sea mining. I, I think Paul had a question for you. Uh, just one thing that I just wanted to uh, ask is about uh, juniors. Uh, if you have, uh, you know, we have retail investors, a lot of people on Kitco, they're looking at taking a flyer in a particular type of junior. Uh, but um, what is uh, different about a junior, say, that is going to be targeting the EV space that is saying that it is actually somebody that is going to be produced, say, a nickel, it's going to produce lithium, it's going to produce rare earth, that is going to be something that can be used in batteries. Are there any questions that an investor should ask about this company that might be difficult from the typical run of mill considerations? Yeah, I think what's different is, is EV battery materials are not commodities. So they're not oil, they're not copper, they're not iron ore. Um, the, the, um, the types of products are really, they're bespoke. They're very highly refined to the billionth of a part level. So one of the things we advise mining companies, and we talk to quite a few junior companies who come to us and we say, look, that's great, you have a great mine. But in, a, in essence, I don't care. What does your commercial team look like? What cell companies, what OEMs have you talked to so that you can go to them and say, I can provide the type of material you want with the ESG footprint. And we're talking before uh, also about you know, China and localization, and ESG compliance, et cetera. That's a huge part. 
If I'm in Europe, I have to tell the European Union what is the CO2 content, SO2 content, water content, acid usage for every molecule that is in my electric vehicle. And right now, if an internal combustion engine gets taxed on average 15,000 euros per vehicle, they know the taxes coming down the pike for CO2 and SO2 numbers in those cars are going to be large. And so I have a distinctive advantage if I have a low ESG product that's a high quality that meets my specs that can go. And I will get a significant premium for that. People say, what's the premium? Well, you sort of have to be, well, what's the tax? It's sort of what Tesla is doing right now. So the, so the average charge per car is 15000 They get, since they're selling an EV, they get a free credit. They'll go out and say, oh, I have a credit for this. Pay me something less than 15000 But it's a lot of money than billions of dollars for Tesla. So, so you will be able to get a premium for this product as the European Union, and if, if the US follows those regulations, which they very much might, might um, that could be really, really interesting. So, you know, tying together the perfect example um, is what you saw with Piedmont Lithium when they tied up with, with, um, with Tesla, what that did to that stock price. So, so you do want as good of a commercial team as you do in mining. Paul? Yeah, no, I was just going to, you know, following up on the, the, the seafloor mining aspect, um, you know, from everything I've seen and read, it seems to still be a very immature um, sector or possibility, still a long, long way to go, still a huge number of unanswered questions. You know, the science isn't there yet, despite the fact that some promoters are saying it's much lower CO2 emissions or what have you than producing metal on land. I mean, what's your take on that, uh, Ken? I can definitely see why people are looking for this. Again, if I have to go from, you know, 300,000 tons going into the nickel market from zero a couple of years ago to something that could be three, four, five, the Tesla's right, six, seven million tons of nickel, how do I increase the size of this industry 100%, 200%? And so I have to look at all options out there. And so I think that's the interest. But you have to take the other side of that equation is, how can I do that ESG compliant? How do I ensure, you know, I, I can't have a green car that consumers and regulators believe has been not properly made in a green manner. And so that is going to be the test of these companies. How can they prove um, that they can mine at the bottom of the ocean such that it, it's, it's somehow really not disturbing the environment? And I've read both sides of the arguments and it's a, it's a long discussion that sometimes you know can get a, a little complicated. Um, however, does it make sense to go after new sources of nickel if these markets become to pass? And I think probably the answer is yes. I mean, of course, you're going to see the stainless steel industry give up a lot of its nickel, but at a certain point, we're going to need these these new answers. It could be like cobalt that we find that manganese. Uh, and we'll use a very high manganese, low nickel product, and we can stretch out our nickel that way. Um, but I, I, you know, the EV companies we talk to um, are very, very concerned about nickel, and, and probably rightfully so. In terms of, and that's the one, the one metal they really are nervous about, both from a supply and a, and a clean supply. We really, I know what you can find online uh, about clean nickel, talking about how difficult it is to provide a clean nickel product to the marketplace. Um, good news is we, we have tracked about a million and a half to two million tons of new nickel projects around the world um, that could be going after. So <laughs> I do think that but we have to get the price of nickel higher. That it, It's a shame if Indonesia does not come through with this new nickel process. Um, it's, it's really delayed the price point of nickel to get new projects delayed. Because most, most nickel miners want something in the 20s before they get comfortable making massive investments. And um, the fact that it's fallen down to about 17,000 again, it's a bit disappointing because it just delays that investment decision to bring the nickel units into the marketplace. I want to get to our number of the week, but I just have one last question for you, Ken. I was hoping if we could do a speed round on metals because uh, we hear about so many of these in the space. Maybe you can help us with a mild, hot, and very hot uh, due to anticipated demand. Uh, and uh, I think you've uh, just already anticipated it with your answer there as well, too. Can you first start uh, with copper? How would you classify it? Mild, hot, or very hot due to anticipated demand? Hot, but not the reason you think of. There's only about 1.2 uh, times the amount of copper in the EV versus internal combustion engine. However, we all want to charge these things in five, six minutes. The infrastructure that you will need to charge these cars, 800 watt, 1,000 watt type of chargers, three, four times the size of a big uh, Tesla charger today, it's going to need a heck of a lot of copper. Cobalt, mild, hot, or very hot? 
it's between cold and, and hot. Um, you most batteries today still use some cobalt. Uh, long term, all these car companies want to reduce or eliminate cobalt. Manganese. Very interesting. Uh, cold today, but could be extremely hot in the future if these new batteries that people are talking about come to pass. Graphite. Everyone's trying to get rid of graphite. Um, it is hot right now because the market is so hot. Remember the uh, the market grew 43% last year to 3.2 million units. IHS is looking for another 70% growth for this year. First two months of this year, I think we've doubled. We're up 100% year over year. So graphite market's gonna be very hot now. Every anode company on earth is trying to reduce or eliminate graphite. So it's hot now. We'll worry about that really past 2025. Uh, earlier, you talked about lithium. How about lithium? I mean, lithium is doing great. It's back up to 14,000. Again, it's due to this very, very strong marketplace. I think lithium is hot in terms of the overall market. Certain products will be volcanic because if some of these chemistries are actually proven, some of these batteries, particularly solid state batteries, are proven to work commercially, there is going to be incredible demand. And we're talking today's price of lithium for some of these products can be 50 times higher than the current lithium price. That's the differential. Now, again, I need that price will need to come down quickly for it to make it commercially viable, but there'll be certain products on the market that will be crazy, crazy hot. Uh, I think we anticipated this one, nickel. Uh, nickel, we are we are bullish on nickel. Uh, we really don't see any other alternative out there. Um, we are especially when it comes to ESG, as I talked about. Um, so uh, we are quite constructive on nickel longer term. Uh, rare earths? Rare earths will be very interesting. Um, you know, there's been an awful lot of push, particularly in the U.S., to, to invest in rare earth uh, mines. Uh, neodymium is the one that uh, is used most for magnets inside EV, both in the motor and the braking systems. Um, and so that's a really interesting metal. Um, China does you know, about 90% of that right now. So, um, and I believe the Chinese have actually just banned the exportation of uh, rare earth refining technology. So it's going to be really interesting to see uh, where investments are made here. Uh, but do know that rare earth prices have been, I think they doubled over the last uh, six months. And our last medal on the mild, hot, and very hot. Uh, Ken, thank you. This is fun. Uh, PGM. PGM's uh, harder for me to tell. I think long-term, hot, because I do believe hydrogen, but that's really long into the future. As you do it, you've had this palladium platinum mix, of the, the sort of diesel being uh, phased out in Europe at a much faster rate than I think anybody occurred. Um, so that one's a little bit hard. I'll, I'll take a punt on that one. Sorry. Uh, Niels, uh, before we get into our number a week, I think you had your hand raised for a question with uh, Ken. Well, we are Kitco, so I'm hoping for a bonus uh, flash round. Uh, gold or silver? <laughs> um, look, uh, anyone who's seen me on Kitco over the last decade knows that I'm, I'm perennially a, a gold bull. I, I love the uh, I love the fact that it's a currency that doesn't have a central bank, and, and I'm a full believer in that. Um, so from that standpoint, very, very bullish. Silver, I've probably not looked in. Silver has always been such an odd fish because of its industrial usage. Um, and so that's, you know, what you're talking about. Solar is really, really interesting. I think what's really interesting, though, is to watch, again, batteries. If you see, watch the battery pack demand for stationary. If it really takes off like we think it will, I think your solar numbers will take off with it. And that would be positive for, for silver. And the other now thing you really watch, people see what are, what's the one thing to watch in the world? Watch for Tesla's new battery plants. That is going to set the stage for demand for metals over the next two to three years. Sorry. Now our number of the week, a notable number. We start with a guest. Ken, what's your number of the week? Higher. <laughs> no, I, I'll tell you something really, really interesting. This year, battery uh, EV cars will probably hit 5 million units. 10 years ago, that number was 42,000. It shows you how this has really changed, become mainstream. No longer are we getting the question of, will EVs occur, will I ever own an EV? In the next three to six years, 90% of the people watching this will consider and or buy an electric vehicle. Hmm. Uh, sorry, I think you cut out there for a minute. Uh, Ken, uh, could you just say what that number was at the top? I said... Uh, I think I said that uh, um, EV sales were 5 million um, at the um, uh, this year. It looks like that number is going to happen, if not higher. 
Um, and what I also said was that the cost of batteries are coming down so much, the compelling nature of EVs is going to be so high that I still think within the next three to six years, 90% of the people watching this today will consider and or buy, and I think most will buy an electric vehicle. Paul, what's your number of the week? I've actually got two this week uh, in line with two of our main themes. The first one, um, the Pareto's law in effect. Um, a study released this week said uh, 22% of the population in Canada takes 73% of flights. Uh, Greenpeace is calling for a frequent flyer levy, a tax increases that increases the more you fly. As well, they're calling for the banning of air miles because they say it encourages frequent flying. Um, I wonder how much of that 22%, how many of that 22% are mining executives. Um, and in line with the uh, other topic, main topic this week of you know Biden's $2 trillion infrastructure plan, uh, another number, 100 to 1. That's how much high-speed rail track China has compared to the US. China has developed some 37,900 kilometers of high-speed track, while um, the best figure I could find for the US was about 362 kilometers. Huge difference. I noticed with the infrastructure announcement uh, that I've seen a whole lot of uh, tweets uh, talking about uh, possibilities for uh, high-speed rail in the US. Uh, hope uh, springs eternal. Uh, yeah. Niels, what's your number of the week? Uh, mine actually came from this morning, uh, 1983. Uh, that was the last time uh, the ISM Manufacturing Sentiment Index uh, hit uh, above 60. So it, it hit uh, uh, 64% this morning, highest level since 1983. Uh, this just shows just how much uh, uh, a robust recovery we could see. I, I covered a report this week from uh, Scott saying um, the U.S. economy could see its best economic activity in 40 years. And some of that data is, um, is supporting that outlook. Uh, whether this is good for precious metals, I don't know. The one thing I think to watch out for is um, what's the cost of this growth? What is going to be the inflation? And what, you know, to, to Ken's point of view, what's going to be the threat of currency debasement in this growth? Paul? I think it is going to be good to growth for growth because all of these companies are going to receive that $2 trillion to build things. They're not going to stick it in the bank. They're going to stick it into gold because they know the currency has just been blown up into small little pieces. Was the uh, number off of the uh, trillion dollar, um, uh, the $2 trillion uh, infrastructure pen, uh, Niels, or is it just based upon uh, the opening uh, recovery right now that's happening in the U.S.? No, this is, this is based on, the, uh, on just on uh, sentiment that they're seeing. So the survey's done, I think, mid-March. So this had nothing to do with, I mean, obviously, everybody's sort of been expecting this announcement. I mean, it's worst kept secret from the, the U.S. government right now. Um, you know, so the, no, nothing he said was really a, a major surprise. Uh, so yeah, so like the, this sentiment is, is sort of that, that was sort of built into the sentiment that, you know what, we're going to get uh, a lots of money into the economy to get things going again. My number of the week is 100%. That's 100%. Argus reported that Japan's Ministry of the Economy wants the country to become 100% self-sufficient in base metals by 2050. The country will achieve that number by using better recycling, increasing stakes in overseas resource operations, and Paul, a look at deep sea mining. That's it for us. Ken, is there anything else we should be aware of that's coming up at McKinsey? Is there any place that people could possibly see a presentation by yourself? Uh, certainly, I do present a lot. Um, always can reach out to me on LinkedIn or uh, probably here to get my, my address. Um, I will be speaking at some conferences. As I said, Jim Lennon and I will be speaking at a conference uh, in about three weeks to debate nickel. Um, and then also, I, I think uh, there's some other conferences coming up. But uh, watch McKinsey.com. We publish all our papers there. Um, or, or please reach out to me via LinkedIn. It's probably the best way for people to do that. I, you know, this is where we uh, talk about our Twitter handles. Uh, Ken, do you have a Twitter handle or you prefer LinkedIn? I'm too old to have a Twitter handle. <laughs> <laughs> Follow Ken Hoffman on LinkedIn. You can reach out to us, though. Uh, my Twitter handle is Michael McRae. That's McRae with two C's. Niels is Niels underscore C. And Paul Harris is P. Harris 13. 
13. Next week, we'll be interviewing Douglas Silver, who will be telling us all about mines and pipelines. That is gold mines and gold pipelines and are the cupboards bare. Uh, hey, we are always looking for feedback on this podcast. Please tweet at us, as I've mentioned up at the top. Email, email us or leave a comment below on the podcast write-up. Uh, look, you know, we love presenting this show for uh, our viewers and for our listeners. Uh, it is a sprawling show, however. Is there more focus that you would like to see? Is there a segment that you prefer one or the other? Uh, is it something that uh, we should provide more focus around? We look forward to getting your feedback. Hey, and if you like what you hear, please tell a friend and don't forget to subscribe through iTunes. Next up, David Lynn's recent interview with mining legend Frank Justra. Joining me today is none other than Frank Justra. He is a man who needs no further introduction in the metals and mining space. He spent most of his career studying gold and learning about the precious metals, and he's built his fortune, his empire, on the metals and mining industry. He's a philanthropist, mining executive, financier. Frank, welcome back to Kiko. It's been a while since we've had you. Always a pleasure. It has been a while. Thanks, David. Nice to be back. Well, it's, it's always nice to have you. We're going to be talking about the buzz you've generated on social media today. And, you know, this is something that I don't see every day in my, in my time as an anchor at Kiko. This is something that I really want to discuss with you. You've been actively and publicly challenging Michael Saylor, CEO of Michael Strategy, to a debate on gold versus Bitcoin. Let me just show uh, the audience this tweet that you've made a few weeks back. I'm just going to read it. It's been last few weeks attempting to challenge Michael Saylor to a friendly debate, gold versus Bitcoin, on a respected media outlet. All right. For, so first of all, just, Frank, you're, 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 you're a busy guy. You've got a lot to handle on your plate. Why are you taking time out of your day to challenge Michael Saylor? First, I'm assuming you've never met the guy, right? No, never met him. Never met him. But I have spent the last few months, uh, as I started to look into Bitcoin over the last sort of six months, I started to look at many of his interviews. And I've watched a lot. I'm not sure I've watched all of them. Um, and I'm willing to be proven wrong but my sense is that he's his strategy is a very clever and calculated strategy of only doing interviews with friendly interviewers i don't think he's been challenged on his thesis in any meaningful fashion yet and i think that this because this debate has become so heated especially on social media you know the gold guys the bitcoin guys i think that uh the investors, investors out there would benefit greatly from this debate. Uh, there's a, a lot to be learned. I think it would be very informative for everybody. And, and, and just to be clear, I am not a Bitcoin hater. I just yeah. think that his thesis on gold and Bitcoin needs to be explored. And I think I would love to have the opportunity to explore some of the statements that he's yeah. making um, when he does these interviews. Well, to be fair, Frank, I, there's a lot of people out there who may not have a very good understanding on gold, who may have said potentially inaccurate things factually, or maybe their outlook doesn't make sense. So why, why Michael Saylor in particular? He's one of many. He is one of many, but I think he is, and I'm just guessing, by, and, I, and I have listened to other Bitcoin um, promoters, people that love to get out there and talk about Bitcoin. There's there's a few of them out there, four or five that I followed. Um, I think out of all of them, Michael has had the most traction. It's, I think that he is really influencing the investment community and he is getting traction. He's, he's a very smart guy. He's doing a great job of selling the story, his thesis, by painting an Italian sunset, yeah. uh, using language, which is a mixture of poetry and science that is bordering on the evangelical. Okay. And that's great. And he is having, the, I think, the most impact out of all the folks out there promoting the Bitcoin thesis. So I, and, I, and I've listened to his arguments, and I want to discuss a lot of what he's saying some make sense. I think Bitcoin does have some similarities to gold, but I think there's some very major differences. Yeah. And it's important to understand that you have to understand those differences to know where Bitcoin and or gold fits in any portfolio. Because 
all asset classes serve a different purpose in a portfolio. And I think that um, if you don't understand that distinction, you're going to make your investment for the wrong reasons. Okay. Where uh, you and I spoke offline about uh, about making the um, about a, a hashtag tw on Twitter. Sailor versus Justra. We're going to try to make that trend. So, uh, you know, that's the Thank hashtag, you. guys. Use that. It's a great, it's a great hashtag you came up with. I, I, I have to take partial credit for that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. No, but I think that that's, you know, I'm trying to, I, I can see that he does not want to have this conversation. Yeah, that was my last um, question. Are you, has he responded at all? I mean, you've, you've been trying this for weeks. From what I understand, because I don't have direct contact, to him, but from what I understand, he was presented with the case. Um, he asked all about me and had asked for a, a bunch of material on who I am and what I've done and uh, what my, you know, what I've spoken about in the past and what I've written about in the past. And then the minute he got that, he went completely silent. Hmm. And, I, and I, you know what? My issue is, I'm not going to. I don't want to do the, this. Debate is getting very heated, and. There's a lot of passion on both sides of the argument that's getting yeah. kind of crazy out there. Um, and I just want, I don't want to have the type of conversation where we're lobbing rhetorical hand grenades at each other. I want to have a conversation about the facts, just the right. facts, no Italian sunset, just let's discuss your thesis and let me just ask you a few questions about it. Well, Michael's got a big following on social media and in the in the investment community. The, aren't you afraid, or I don't know if afraid is a backward, but aren't you concerned about backlash from the Bitcoin community? Is that something that you've thought about? Oh, it's already started on social media. You should follow my Twitter account. It's, I do follow it's, your it's, Twitter. And some of it's hilarious. I mean, and I think there's a, one central theme that seems to be coming from the Bitcoin fans out there that are obviously Michael Saylor followers. Um, is that uh, I? There's no need to have this debate. Just go out there, buy Bitcoin, and get over it. Number one, just mm -hmm. buy it and get over it. You, you've lost the argument already. Or let you know, let it just settle where it settles. Let people do what they want, and you know, Bitcoin yeah. goes up and gold goes down. You know, they'll be proven right down the road. Right. And which is fine. And and I can understand that. Yeah, that's that's one approach. But I think there's been so many things said about gold by Michael Saylor, mostly, and others, that I think it needs some clarification. I think investors sure. will really appreciate to get this clarification. Sure. All right. We're, we're not going to reveal too much of your strategy and what you want to talk about. We'll save that for the after debate some, sometime yeah. down the line. But I do want to bring up uh, these tweets that uh, Saylor has made, and I'd like you to address them. So first of all, this one, shareholder value creation comes from holding and appreciating asset. BTC over a long period of time is logical for every firm, both public and private in the Bitcoin industry to do the same thing Tesla is doing. So he's, you know, as you're aware, Tesla has bought $1.5 billion of gold, or sorry, Bitcoin rather. And the argument here is that if every company, the S&P 500 does the same thing, well, Bitcoin's market cap is going to increase exponentially. And that's what he's advocating for. Take a look at this tweet here. You've, you've actually retweeted this and you've commented on this. Following the light of the sun, we left the old world. What is the old world? Is he referring to gold? Yes, which he calls the analog world. Yeah, that's what he's okay. referring to. All right. So, what are your thoughts on that? Are we are we well, is it called said, the analog world? He's using some very flowery language out there. It sounds great. I mean, it, but I don't know what it means. And until I get to ask him a lot of the questions, I'd love to ask him. It, to right. me, it doesn't mean anything. I could make say, similar, very similar statements about gold or other things. That doesn't mean anything. Give me the facts, just the facts. That's all I care about. Well, then I can make up my own mind. By the way, he may convince me. You know, uh, it, I'm, you know, I have my views. I think Bitcoin is going a lot higher. I really, yeah. for, for reasons that have nothing to do with what he's stating, Bitcoin is. Okay, yeah. there's, there's where we differ. Well, if Michael is watching this interview right now, which I hope he does, if it gets, you know, if it gets circulated around on social media. Enough. I hope this lands in his lap somehow. If he is watching, what would you say to him right now? I would say, listen, you seem to have tremendous conviction. Um, if that's a, your conviction is very strong. So why are you afraid of debating me if, if you have such strong conviction? I'm not, I'm not going to bite. I would just ask you to step out of your echo chamber for just a, a moment and get some fresh air right. and just have a conversation with someone who's actually going to challenge you on some of your, some, some of your points. 
Okay, I'm just going to do some role-playing here. So you and I have spoken about this offline, so I'm going to bring it up. Suppose I'm Michael Saylor. I would say, well, why should I debate you? Who is Frank Joostra? I'm sorry, I've never met you before. Who are you again? <laughs> well, um, he is an expert in Bitcoin, yeah. and, and I respect that. Uh, I'm an expert in gold. I've been um, writing about gold and speaking in public forums about gold for over 20 years now. Um, I do know something about the subject. Um, I'm one of a handful of people that does. And I think that I'm the appropriate person he should have this conversation with because he's been saying a lot of things that I need to clarify. Well, what do you think is the ideal outcome of this debate? For not well, just yourself, it, but also investors who watch the show. Well, I think what's, what the, if, if it happens, and, I, and I'm hoping it happens, although I'm getting less and less becoming less and less optimistic. I think he's just going to avoid me. Um, but if it does happen, I think investors can then go, okay, I'm going to buy Bitcoin for these reasons. Yeah. And I will buy gold for these other reasons. And they're two very different things. And so I think that that's really all I want to get out there so that people can go, okay, Bitcoin is probably a great bet. I'm going to make some money out of Bitcoin. But, you know, gold has a role in my portfolio that, I don't, I don't think Bitcoin really can ever challenge. Well, that's an excellent point, Frank, because some people are saying, well, what's the point of having a debate? Let's just hold both. Right? Jim Cramer, for example, what would you say to Jim Cramer? Because he's a longtime advocate of gold. He still is. But for the, for the longest time, he's advocated to hold 10% of your portfolio in gold. Now he's saying 5% gold, 5% Bitcoin. Yeah. I mean, would you agree with him? Well, <laughs> I, I, I have no, I, I can't get into Jim Cramer's mind sure. I, I can only guess that jim kramer is suffering from fomo the fear of missing out yeah you know it's, it's really hard to watch something go straight up and not feel that pull to and be lured into it i i'm having the same problem with bitcoin i'm watching it going up and i'm just holding on to my discipline to understand it better before I jump in. But boy, I have FOMO too. I, I'd right. love to get on, you know, on some action that, you know, on, on an asset class that is going through the roof. So Jim Cramer, I'm sure, is doing that. And right. you know, I'm sure he has other reasons for it. Um, but I think the other institutional, you brought up a good point because you know, Sailor and others have talked about you know, the number of institutional uh, players coming into the game that are, you know, the really important hedge fund managers, Paul Tudor Jones, Druckenmiller, um, Gunlatch, uh, and then Musk, you know, on behalf of Tesla. Um, but I think the investors should understand why are these institutions, these hedge funds doing it? They have, you know, Michael is promoting the idea of buying Bitcoin and holding it forever, passing it down through generations to never ever sell it because it's going to a hundred thousand, half a million dollars, a million dollars per Bitcoin. I've heard all three numbers from him. Yeah. Um, and that's fine for, for, for Michael, but I, you know, Paul Tudor Jones is one of the greatest traders on wall street. I suspect that his time frame, his time horizon might be different than what, um, what uh, Michael is, okay. is suggesting it should be. And, you know, you, he's the, someone like Paul Tudor Jones will never tell you that he's about to sell his Bitcoin. You'll sure. hear about it. You ask him a year or two years from now, what happened to your Bitcoin? You go, oh, yeah, well, we made a great profit. And we, I mean, that's so I, I think that, again, and I don't want to give away too much because I, I, I want to have this debate with Michael. He is right. saying a lot of things that I, would you know challenge or question or yeah. dig deeper in? Yeah, I, I, I do have one more question on this, and uh, then I'll let you go. Because um, again, don't go into too much if you don't want to. But uh, what would you? How would you? Would you be prepared to address this point? Sailor has repeatedly said on various media that Bitcoin is superior to gold, and he was. He, you know, one thing he has brought up, which is correct, is that gold's price has lagged behind Bitcoin this year. Objectively, that's just what it is. But he said that that's because gold is inferior to Bitcoin. And so all the gold investors are moving into Bitcoin. Would you be prepared to address that? You don't have to give your answer now, but do, would you have a response to that? Yeah, my, my response is that let's address the gold price performance this year. I think it has a lot more to do with 
the steepening of the yield curve than it has to okay. do with Bitcoin. Right. But having said that, I do believe that Bitcoin has eaten a bit into that marginal buyer of what would have been a marginal buyer of gold or Bitcoin is going into Bitcoin. The speculators that are looking for gold features are going into, a lot of them are going to Bitcoin. This is absolutely true. And it is having a, obviously had a very positive effect on Bitcoin and it is having somewhat of a negative effect on gold. But I don't think any of the major gold investors around the world are making that switch yet. All right. I, I, I don't see that. Final words to our audience, Frank, to those who are watching right now and wondering when and why and how this debate's happening, what would you say to the people watching? I am saying that if uh, <laughs> tag Michael Taylor and, and ask him to debate me, number one. So it's the Sailor versus Justra tag. Sailor versus Justra. Um, and let's get it trending because I'm not going to go away. I'm going to pursue having this debate with him. If he chooses not to, whether he chooses to do it or not, I think will be the true testament to his conviction. And if he doesn't do it, I have my answer. I don't need to know any more about what he truly, truly believes. Mm -hmm. And he's really willing to stand up for it. So I would hope that the audience will get on social media and try and please convince him. And again, I'm not a Bitcoin hater. I just want to make sure we understand sure. what it is and what it isn't. And Frank, Frank, I do want to bring up that there's been support for this debate happening on social media by other prominent business leaders. I've seen Kelvin O'Leary retweet about this. I've seen Peter Schiff retweet about this. So there, this is not just coming from you. It's coming from a lot of prominent people. I mean, have you spoken to some of these people? What do they think? I have. Everybody would love this debate. And I'm not finished. There will be others asking for this debate. And Michael can't. You know, you can choose not to have it, but eventually a lot of people are going to know that he turned this down and they're going to start asking why. So, yeah, I think that thanks to Kevin and Peter and there will be others. All right. Well, your Twitter handle was on the screen. People feel free to use Frank Juice's Twitter handle to get this trending. And of course, Michael Saylor's Twitter handle is also being shown as well. Feel free to use that and tag him. I, I don't know if I don't know if Saylor will respond, but hopefully Frank, you would respond to some of these tweets. I will, I, I've I'm seen you very active, yeah. I spend a lot of my time on Twitter these days, which I normally don't. But, uh, yeah. no, because I think this is a really important debate. So I'm, right. I'm, I'm spending a lot of time on Twitter. And I, I will make sure if you tweet me, tag me, I'll make sure it gets known out there. All right. Well, and Michael Saylor, if you are watching, uh, please consider uh, accepting Frank's challenge. We'd love to host you at some point. Thank you very much, Frank, for coming on the show and explaining your thoughts. It's uh, always pleasure. a pleasure. Okay, and, thank uh, you. Hopefully this gets trending. And thank you for watching Kiko News. I'm David Lin.